This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Kerry Phillips, and this is Rear Vision and the story of the Saudi-backed tournament that's blowing up the professional golfing world. And here we go. The trumpets sounded out as the players teed off in a move that harks back to World Series cricket, a rebel competition taking on the status quo. The future of golf is here. That future is the brainchild of Australian Greg Norman. He secured a reported 2.8 billion Australian dollars from the Saudi Arabian government's investment arm, prompting criticism from human rights advocates. And just last week, Australia's Cameron Smith became the first player in the top 10 to join the Live Tour. The game of golf put down roots in St Andrews, Scotland in the 16th century, where the game was played on the links, the rough land between the sea and the farms. It remains a game soaked in tradition, and the setup for the modern professional game takes some time to get your head around. On Rear Vision, we'll delve into pro golf and then find out why Live, a new competition, has sparked an acrimonious split among the players. Professional golf took shape in the late 1960s when Tours, a series of competitions, were established first in the US and then Europe. Today, professional golf associations, PGAs, run tours everywhere, although the US tour is the most lucrative. There are also four majors, including the Masters, held in Augusta, that's the one with the green jackets, but these are each run by separate organisations. Professional golf isn't like tennis, where the top players make a fortune and the rest are left to scrabble along as best they can. Pro golfers you've never heard of can make a handsome living. The money in tennis for the lower-ranked players, as in anyone out to the top 100, is terrible, but... The 125th guy on the PGA Tour this year will make a million dollars. Hi, I'm Mike Clayton. I used to play golf as a professional. I'm a golf course architect and a golf course writer who has an interest in all things golf and has loved the game for 55 years. In answer to your question, there are lots of guys making good money out of golf. You know, the senior tour, Dave McKenzie's an Australian. Last I looked, he was just inside the top 50. He'd made 300,000 US for the year. The women's game is thriving and popular. So there's a lot more money in golf than there is in tennis. But as in any sport, of course, the top players make ridiculous amounts of money. I think Scotty Scheffler, leading the money this year, has made $14 this year. Cameron Smith probably made 12. So there's a lot of money at the top. But the 125th guy who doesn't sell a ticket, no one knows who he is. If he walked out of Sydney Airport tomorrow, no one would have a clue who he was. He's making a million dollars on the course plus probably at least half that off the course. In sponsorship? Yeah, so they're all doing okay. Where does the prize money come from in these competitions? It comes from the sponsors who tip in multiple millions and it comes from a massive TV contracts. So the TV contracts tip lots of money into golf. And the TV contracts boomed when Tiger Woods turned up and the money went crazy. So everyone who makes a dollar out of golf, should pay half of it to Tiger Woods because that's pretty much what he did for the rest of them. The purses for these things average probably about $2 million US, of which the winner will take $1 million US. That's an average. Hi there, I'm Matt Cleary. I'm a freelance sports writer from Sydney and the author of A Short History of Golf. 
at the end of the year, there's a thing called the FedEx Cup on the US PGA Tour, which the winner makes $10 million or maybe 20 now. <laughs> but anyway, ridiculous numbers. For the top guys, the lifestyle is, you know, they, they live in Florida generally or a lot of them live in Dallas, Texas, apparently, or Austin. They, they, there's a few little hubs there for, for flying around. It's a funny lifestyle. They look like they're very much in a, in a bit of a bubble outside looking in. They put on a, a big show every weekend. You know, they fly in, they fly out. They fly all around the world, some of them, and I don't think they'd actually get to see much of any places they'd go to because they'd get in there on a Tuesday, practice, they'd play a pro-am on a Wednesday. They're into the tournament, which might go two to four days. On the Monday, they've got to go somewhere else and repeat. There's a complex system of pro player rankings based on points scored over the year, the number of events played, and the status of the events themselves. These rankings are used to help select the field for the various tournaments, including the majors. But you don't start off on the big bucks. All players start out as amateurs, and until the mid-1970s, everyone had to do an apprenticeship, three years for most. You've got to be really, really, really good <laughs> to start with. All golfers begin as amateurs and play amateur golf, which is obviously not for money. And even with amateur golf, there's a, an order of merit and, and a world ranking system. Guys play in certain tournaments that give them order of merit numbers, which allow them to play in the next tournament, the next tournament. But, you know, they've got to be really good, obviously, to start. Most guys, they join up as trainees, like an apprenticeship, where they learn everything about the game in terms of retail and equipment and pro shops and corporate days and golf tours, because that's largely where they're going to make their quid. And if they want to be involved in the golf industry as a professional, that's what they just have to learn. The absolute elite will go through their apprenticeship, their traineeship and become great players. It's very much a meritocracy. And again, most won't play for pay. That traineeship or that cadetship or the, that you were referring to, is that a kind of formal thing at a golf club? Yeah, in Australia, you are a trainee and you're seconded to a professional at a club, generally. You go there and work under the pro at the club. So a golf pro at a golf club is like the director, if you like, of golf at the club. <laughs> they run competitions for members. They you know, look after their equipment. They give them lessons. Say a golf club might have 500 members, all of whom will look to the golf pro to organise their competitions, to fix their clubs, to give them a few lessons. And a golf trainee, and you might have two or three going at once, they start off with a high-pressure hose <laughs> washing golf clubs and, and you know, right from the bottom, if you like. But that, they, they learn that industry. So, yeah, it's a formal apprenticeship training type affair. The other path to pro golf is through a qualifying school run by each professional golfers association. After 1975, you could go from there straight onto the professional tour. That's what Mike Clayton did, tour school and straight onto the tour. To get a card on a tour, you go to a tour school. So, so every tour runs a qualifying school and takes the leading X number of players and they earn a card to play the following season. The first stage of the European tour school there's a section of it in Rosebud in Victoria. So the leading, I think, 25% of players at that school can go to Spain to play the second and third stages. So it's $3,000 to enter. And the guys who make it at Rosebud then are kind of committed to the travel and the expense of going to the second and third stage, which is all up. It's probably going to cost them $15,000. So it's kind of an expensive business. You need a 
need to have played well or have a sponsor or spend your money wisely to be able to afford to do that. So every tour has a school and you go to the school and get your card and you play. And of course, most people who make a living out of golf never play on the professional tours. It's a massive industry and the vast, vast majority of professional golfers, and that, that, and that would be 99.5% at least, <laughs> don't make a living with pay-for-play. They don't play golf on tours. They don't play for prize money. They run golf shops. They sell equipment. They teach. They could run corporate days. They could run golf tours, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's a whole industry around the game in terms of merchandise, equipment, and, yeah, the vast majority of golf pros who I reckon 99.9% start out with starry eyes and who, who want to go and play on the, on the big tours of the world and play in the Open Championship and play the Masters and all that. No, there are so many different strands within the golf industry that a golf professional can take, but actually playing the game for money is not how most golf pros make a living. The pitch is simple. Golf like you've never seen it before. You'd be forgiven for wondering why Live Golf, helmed by CEO Greg Norman, is causing so much controversy. After all, the faster, louder 54-hole tournaments promise a revolution of a traditional sport. It's believed the tour will include tournaments in North and Latin America, Asia, the Middle East and Europe, and one event in Sydney set to take place in April 2023. The creation of LIV, a new professional competition funded with buckets of money from the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Saudi Arabia, has divided the golfing world. Players supporting the rebel competition, including LIV's CEO Greg Norman, argue that it can truly be a world tour, ending the stranglehold the US PGA has on the game. But many of those who'd also like to see the game shaken up can't stomach the backing of Saudi Arabia. You know, I think if you ask different people, Carrie, you would get different answers. I mean, for me personally, it's really simple. You know, I've been following the Saudi regime for a long time. I have a friend who I've gotten to know well who grew up in Saudi Arabia. Hi, I'm Lisa Cordwell. I am a longtime sports broadcaster here in the U.S. I uh, worked seven years for Golf Channel, now do a lot of work for the PGA Tour. But I've covered all sports. And like you, I have a podcast, and it's called Like It Is, where we talk openly about a lot of these different issues. And I know a lot of people want to go back to 9-11, and obviously you go back to that, and 15 of the 19 hijackers from 9-11 were Saudi Arabian. But then as a woman, and you continued to read about just the horrible way that they treat females in that country, it's a quick Google search to learn how horrible this country is. And look, I get that there are a lot of horrible countries around the world, my country included. There are a lot of things that I'm not proud of, but we're not Saudi Arabia, and very few countries in the world are Saudi Arabia and doing the horrible things that they continue. They just sentenced a woman to 34 years in prison, plus a 34-year travel ban, a young woman with two kids, for tweeting. It's, it's hard to accept anything that is backed by that government. 
So I think that it's just the knowledge of that and continuing to learn more about just how closely involved the Saudi Arabian government is and live golf for me personally. I can never support it. You know, people can talk about growing the game of golf all they want to. I care about growing the game of golf, obviously having been a person in the game for a long time, but I couldn't care less about that. What I care about is is how they treat women and the fact that they're trying to use this whole facade of getting into sports. I mean, it's the definition of sports washing, what they're doing. And in a way, they're succeeding. The Live competition is different in many ways from the standard tour event. For a start, golfers play only three rounds of 18 holes, not four. There's no cut. After a regular 72-hole event, they cut the field, a normal field of 154, 144 players, less in the winter. They cut it down to the leading 65 or 70. So the players who missed the cut go home without any money. This is 54 holes, no cut, everyone gets paid. And there's a shotgun start, which essentially means that the players all tee off at the same time. They just play off different holes. So the one group tees off the first tee, one off the second tee, all the way through to the 18th tee. Whereas on a regular PJ Tour event, the starting times are staggered by 10 minutes. In the live events, everyone's on the course at the same time. And, and it's crazy money. I mean, the winners are getting $4.5 million. So double what you get for winning a major and four times what you get for winning the smallest event on the PGA Tour and more than 10 times what you get for winning an event on the European Tour. And you get paid no matter where you finish. Yeah, you, you can finish last and shoot 20 shots worse than the guy's second last and you get $120,000 US, guaranteed. Big difference with the Live Tour is the players are on guaranteed contracts or the, or the top players. So the rumour is that Phil Mickelson's getting $200 million, Dustin Johnson 150. Kevin Nah, who's you wouldn't recognise if he walked out of Sydney Airport, but he's been a decent player. He's on, I think, $30 million guarantee. So one of the major differences is the players are guaranteed an income before they start the year, whereas on the PGA Tour, they're not. No one's guaranteed a dollar before they start. What could you say about the people who have signed up, the players who have signed up? Because some of them are players who would have been making eye-watering amounts of money anyway. It's not just the players who don't stand to make the good money, is it? They've got Bryson DeChambeau, Dustin Johnson, Brooks Kepka. I don't want to hazard a guess at what Brooks Kepka or Bryson DeChambeau's income, including endorsements, would be a year. But probably if you guessed at $40 million, that would be close. But they all seem to think that they should be worth more than they're getting. It seems to be the argument. And that, you know, they're comparing themselves to baseball players and football players and how much they're making. But golfers play for a lot longer and they've got massive off-course endorsement incomes and, you know, they're all doing pretty well. But when someone sticks a check for $100 million under your nose, a lot of them are finding it irresistible. The live split has pitted two golfing legends against each other, Greg Norman and Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods, who's leading the opposition to live, turned down the offer to join. The rumour is he knocked back seven to $800 million, so a billion Australian dollars. And I think if you offered him $10 billion, he still wouldn't go, because I think he hates probably too strong a word, but it wouldn't be far off to describe his relationship with Greg Norman. For Greg Norman, this tournament has echoes of a golf super league he tried to get off the ground in 1994. 
Backed by fellow Aussie Rupert Murdoch, he tried to set up a world golf tour with purses that dwarfed those offered by the PGA and guaranteed money for all players. That battle was won by the PGA. Norman is the public face of Live Golf. I can't speak for Greg. My guess is that he's bent on revenge for, for the tour blowing up his world tour concept of the mid-90s. Someone else comes along who's willing to fund it. Why did he want it in the first place? Obviously, it wasn't just him on his own. Well, it was Rupert Murdoch who wanted it for his, his TV stations. And Greg wanted it because Greg, I assume, thought he could make a lot of money out of it. As far as I can tell, Greg's business model has always been, in, in everything, is to put his name on whatever, wine, turf, beef, golf course design. He puts his name on it. Other people fund the projects and Greg gets a cut of the action. Greg, as far as I can tell, is not investing his own money in those businesses. He gets other people to fund it. He sells his own name, which is a really smart way to do it. Jack Nicklaus did the opposite. Nicklaus signed two personal guarantees to two golf course real estate developments in the early 1980s and was bankrupt in 1986. So Greg learned a lesson from that, which was not to invest your own money in anything, certainly anything risky. Greg Norman, for a lot of people like myself, you know, I grew up watching Greg Norman play, and he certainly has been a force in the game of golf and a personality. I mean, he brought this international flair to it that very few have been able to do. I mean, you think about Greg Norman, you think about Seve Ballesteros. I mean, they are just individuals who have forever left their their stamp and their mark on the game. And it just feels like Greg has a vendetta against the PGA Tour. And look, I, I understand that, that there are parts of the elements that the PGA Tour maybe has hurt, like in Australia, has hurt the growth of high-level golf in that regard. But spearheading a rival league that is so disruptive. I mean, look at this. We now have legal cases coming left and right. How in the world can that be good for anybody? Certainly, how can it be good for Greg Norman? Because I know that there are people on that side that support him, but I know there are a lot more people who are questioning his motives, rightfully so. So it seems like a personal vendetta for Greg. And then for the Saudis, it's just, it's strictly sports washing and everybody else is along for the ride. The US PGA has effectively banned the Live Rebels from playing in any of its events. Well, when you become a member of the PGA Tour, you have to play 15 events a year. And if you want to play a conflicting event, so an event anywhere in the world that conflicts with a PGA Tour event, you have to get a release from the tour to play. The problem is that there have never been conflicting events in America. So if Bryson DeChambeau wanted to play a conflicting event in America, they wouldn't give him a release. The tour is always run on the principle that we're not going to have our players going off and playing conflicting events inside the United States. So when they applied to play live events that conflicted with the PJ Tour schedule, they weren't given a release to play and they went and played. So the Tour took their membership from them, said you're banned from playing because you broke our rules. Fair enough, I think. You know, if you want to go and play live, that's fine, but you can't expect to play both. Because one is trying to blow up the other one, as far as I can tell, and it has the potential to do that. So, if, you know, if live sign up the top 50 players in the world and guarantee them $100 million each and, they start playing for $25 million 14 times a year, plus the majors, that's pretty much a full schedule. So, you know, if the Tour lose the top 50 players, it blows the Tour up, essentially. 
In early August, some of the Live players took the PGA to court in what's called an antitrust suit. They argued that the PGA was operating a monopoly, stifling competition. The judge decided in favour of the PGA because none of the players had actually lost any money. In fact, they were making more. Well, that's the part of the antitrust suit that has taken place. And I will say that I think that, you know, when the judge issued the ruling a couple weeks ago, and she was very clear, she said, look, you all made a financial decision and your financial position is actually better than it was before you were playing live. So how can you try to fight this battle? Look, it's it's going to be played out in the court system. I don't even think that they have a trial date set for a couple of years. So it will be a long battle. I don't know if if Live Golf is going to be willing to last that long. They probably will for a couple of years, but long term, no. And if things continue to go down the path that we saw from the court ruling a couple of weeks ago, it, it's going to be a long uphill battle for them. Unlike other rebel competitions, Kerry Packers World Series Cricket or Rupert Murdoch's Super League, Liv isn't a money-making enterprise. The Saudis don't need to make money out of it. Three Liv tournaments have already been played, with a fourth in Boston this weekend. And so far, no broadcast rights have been sold. You can see them for free on YouTube. I've watched about 30 seconds of it and I had to turn it off. To me, it felt like walking into a casino where, you know, where lights and um, sounds are, are blinking and flashing. They're just throwing money away. This, there's no business model. I think that that's the p- problem that really bothers me. I mean, you look at this, there is no business model for what they're doing. They're throwing hundreds of millions of dollars at these players just to join up, but they don't have a broadcast partner. They don't have sponsorship partners. There's no business person who is credible, who would say, yeah, this makes sense. I don't think that the Saudis have any intention of running a golf tour. I just don't. I see it as a short-lived thing. As soon as they get this opposition from the PGA Tour, I don't know how they continue to fight it off. The announcements that have been made this week are very clear that the PGA Tour is committed to continue to not answer the phone call from Greg Norman. And I'm glad that that's happening. They have they have the financial ability, as we've learned this week, to do that. And not everybody has that ability, like I talked about with the LPGA Tour. But this is this is going to be a big question mark, I think, for the Saudis in terms of how do we go forward with this year after year after year and continue to fight this off. I don't see it as a long-term thing. And that's what concerns me, not about men's golf, but if they come into women's golf and try to partner or take over the LPGA Tour, what happens when they cut and run in four to five years? That's my prediction. No, I don't think that they're they're long-term partners or anyone you can rely on. They're here for one reason and one reason only, and that's to try to make it look like they're actually doing something good in the world. We've had these in Australia. We had World Series cricket in the 70s with Kerry Packer. We had um, Super League when Rupert Murdoch turned up with Super League and, you know, there was a great schism in, in Australian Rugby League. And both of those, the Rebel League became the mainstream and, you know, they eventually shared the great prize. Certainly in cricket, Packer won with his World Series cricket because he got all those champion players. And you could argue, you know, Foxtel, Rupert Murdoch won the Super League war. Rupert, you know, got pay TV in Australia on the back of rugby league if you want a winner from that. So, but the point is that those two 
thing, those two rebel groups became the mainstream. Whether LOV somehow subsumed into the PGA Tour, it's not very easy to see at the moment <laughs> because there is such animosity and angst and personal stuff going on, which again reminds you of the rugby league you know, in the mid-90s. But again, we keep coming back to the money. They're not going anywhere. The Saudi, so they, they have more money than anyone and they're not afraid to use it. So they're here, they're here. There's definitely some competition for the great players. Many golfers and fans agree the current pro game needs to change and that the dominance of the US and its wealthy white demographic isn't good for the future of golf. I live in the golf world and I still don't have my arms wrapped around it. I don't fully understand it. I think that they're trying to make golf more young. They're trying to make it more hip and appeal to the younger audience, which golf has always had a difficult time doing. It will always be the challenge. I mean, it's I hate to say it, it's kind of a stuffy white sport. You know, we don't have a lot of players of color who play golf, unfortunately. There aren't a lot of players with tattoos who play golf. There aren't players from mixed racial backgrounds and who came from low-income homes in the sport. And look, I mean, I love the game, but it caters to the upper echelon in terms of wealth. And look, it's everything's a, a push right now. It's a push to the younger generation. And in this battle between the PGA Tour and Live Golf, I think when you have Tiger Woods on your side, you probably stand a pretty good shot of winning. What the Tour did after the FedEx Cup, end of August, they start the following season pretty much the next week or the wraparound season. So if you want to get off to a good start for the following season, you stay behind in America and you play through September, October, November. So the effect on the Australian tour has that our best players stay behind in America and don't come back here and play anymore. So it's been terrible for our tour. The PGA Tour dominates the world. Because of the money that came into the PGA Tour because of Tiger, it dragged all the best European players to America, and it's kind of hurt the tour around the world. Not that it's their job to care about what happens to the tour around the world. They only care about their own players and what happens in America. But the unintended consequence of the wraparound tour was that it really hurt the Australian tour, the Japanese tour, the South African tour. I think everyone recognises PGA Tour is too much of the same stuff week after week. It's four-round stroke play, 45 weeks a year, nondescript courses, lots of events the best players don't play. It's a pretty tired, boring product that needs shaking up. Absolutely, there should be more mixed golf. There is almost no mixed golf. The Australian Open this year is going to be a mixed event for the first time. There's a mixed event in Scandinavia. There's one in Ireland. There's pretty much nothing in America. The President's Cup, which is a 12-man teams event, the US versus the players from the rest of the world outside of Europe, that I think should be a six-man, six-woman event would be great. So the tour is, is absolutely in need of a shake-up. It's complacently gone along serving up the same stuff in Europe and Japan and Australia and America for 40 or 50 years. And it needs a shake-up and it needs something different. There's one match play tournament, which is essentially head-to-head combat in the same way that tennis is, where you, you start off with X number of players and you finish up with two on Sunday. The benefit of tennis is that you nearly always get the best players in the final at the end of the week. In golf, that rarely happens. They tried it in the early 1970s in the vain hope that Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicklaus would be in the final, and they never were. So match play, for whatever reason, has never worked as 
an individual tour event. It certainly works as a team's event. The Ryder Cup's a great, arguably the best event in golf, not the most important tournament, but the best event in golf, and it's all match play, Europe versus the PGA Tour, and it's great. So golf needs a shake-up, but the question is whether it's a, a live shake-up or whether it's a Tiger Wood-induced private equity shake-up or whether it's a world tour that goes around the world outside of America. They're all the questions that are going to be answered in the next decade, I think. Mike Clayton, professional golfer, golf course architect and commentator. The other guests were US sports broadcaster Lisa Cornwall and Matt Cleary, sports writer and author of A Short History of Golf. This Rear Vision was produced by me, Kerry Phillips, and sound engineer Simon Branthwaite for ABC RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.